Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI, ARC's podcast covering everything that's happening in the world of innovation. Today with two special guests, Nicola Crozet and Filippo Mazzanotti, both associate professors of finance at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. Nicola and Filippo put out an excellent paper earlier this year called Shocks and Technology Adoption, Evidence from Electronic Payment Systems, that really delves into a very unique episode in the world of fintech. As you may recall, in 2016, the Indian government decided to take extraordinary measures to devalue its fiat currency. It essentially took all the paper money in circulation and replaced it with new paper money in an effort to fight money laundering, corruption, and tax evasion. This was quite an unprecedented event, and it actually provided the world with an interesting case study on what happens when something happens like this, and more importantly for us, what it can do for digital payments, such as what we're used to with Venmo and PayPal in the West and with Alibaba and other systems elsewhere. So Nicola and Filippo obtained some very special data from one of the leading providers of mobile payments in India and analyze that data before and after the incident. And they really dive deep into the effects of this policy change and what it has done for the mobile payment landscape in India. On this podcast, I'm joined by ARC's native fintech analyst, Max Friedrich, and we hope you enjoyed this conversation. Nicola and Filippo, you guys put out a paper called Shocks and Technology Adoption, Evidence from Electronic Payment Systems toward the end of last year. What gave you the idea to do a research project around this topic and who are the primary people involved? And maybe give us just a kind of top level takeaway on what you discovered. So this started, I guess, with both Filippo and my interest in what happened in India a couple of years ago, which was this enormous and really completely unprecedented shock to essentially the stock of money. So overnight, the Reserve Bank of India, which is the Indian Central Bank, decided to void something like 80% of the Indian currency and uh, replace it with new bills. And so, of course, that's the kind of macro shock that has all sorts of consequences. But as we thought about it, we figured it must have hit particularly hard the payment systems. And so we did some preliminary work. We looked at national you know, India level data, and it looked very much like the shock had changed something about the typical payment systems used in India. So more electronic payment systems, you know, debit cards, ATMs, and so on were being used than before. And so it got us thinking about what's the relationship between, you know, big shocks and the adoption of this sort of technology. And so I guess we'll get into the details of the paper, but these, these technologies are a bit special because when you choose to adopt them as a firm, you're thinking not only about 
you know, their technical features, but also about how many other firms are using them. So they're, you know, they're networks, so they're a bit weird and, and they have special properties. So I got just thinking about, about the topic and then we, we uh, joined forces with uh, our PhD student, Apworv, who, Apworv Gupta, who's a co-author on this paper and helped us, who helped us uh, throughout, but in particular helped us, directed us towards, towards the data that we use in, in this paper. You were talking about using the term tech um, while you were talking. Could you maybe clarify, you're talking about the digital wallet as you define it, correct? Or does tech include other payment methods? I think you also looked at debit card and credit card. What kind of sticks out from these? So we did start initially to look with aggregate data. And there we could look, you know, the more traditional electronic payment system. Like think about debit card and credit card. And so you could see, if you look at the aggregate data, what you see in there is that you know, in traditional electronic system, you see some reaction of the shock. So during the demonetization, the increase was large. But this shock on the traditional part was, first of all, not that big. I mean, if you look at, for instance, credit card transactions, they not increased that much. But also, it was mostly driven by an intensive margin. So for instance, if you look at the amount of debit card transactions, they increased a lot. But there were not that many more debit card issues at the time, which kind of makes us think about you know, this technology, yeah, they're, they're kind of useful, but they have a kind of a big fixed cost to adoption. Like if you want to get a new debit card, it will take money, it will take time. So, you know, in a developing country like India, this would be potentially like a constraint for the growth. And so that's kind of where we started. And then going back to what, what we were talking, that's why we essentially approach one of the leading companies that does electronic wallet technology in India. And essentially, we were able to kind of get their data on the use of electronic wallet technology. And this data is, is a different technology than the traditional one. And it's a different technology for, I would say, you know, mostly uh, two reasons. I mean, the first one, of course, is you know, more new. So there is like more, fewer users to start in, in India. But the second one, which we think is key, is that the adoption costs are really, really low. It would literally take you a couple of minutes to kind of activate the system. So if you're at a store and you want to allow customer to come to you and pay electronically, or on the other hand, if you're a customer trying to pay electronically, it would literally take a couple of minutes. The, the, the idea is very similar to what could be like Venmo in the United States. It's literally allow you to make payments or receive payment using your phone. The technology is also particularly tailored for developing countries. So, you know, in India, the use of phone, it's quite widespread, but Still, you know, potentially you can argue their area in which accessing internet may be more difficult or expensive. And so these companies in particular also provide option to pay that did not necessarily require the internet. So you could use different, essentially, like offline options. And so the bottom line is that, again, this is very similar to like what we think about like traditional electronic payment, but adoption costs are much lower. And still, they are characterized by a large strength of network externality. You know, when you start, this technology was not that widespread. So for you as a, as, a, as a store or as a consumer, you know, the incentive to adopt it was potentially not that high because not many people were using it. But then things kind of changed very rapidly with the, the monetization. Okay, interesting. I remember b back then when this happened in India, just kind of in the background for news, but I didn't remember what was the reasoning that the banks used uh, to actually take such drastic measures and devalue 80% of their paper money. Um, what was the context of uh, that event? Why did they have to go through such extreme measures? I think there was a several reasons. I think the main key reason of the government was essentially 
officially to kind of fight black money and try to essentially identify people that would have a large amount of money kind of store because of, uh, you know, kind of illicit transaction and also kind of identify nodes that would be kind of fake or counterfacted. So that's kind of the, the kind of the political motivation that was behind the, the, the official political motivation that was behind the decision. And, uh, and that's kind of what, what Trump tried to decision. I mean, the intuition here is, is quite simple, is that the people were not, the cash was not removed completely from the market. Essentially, what they did is that they said the old 500,000 rupees was going to be legal anymore. And they had to be returned to the banking sector. And at which point you could potentially get the new notes, they issue new 500 and new 2000 notes. And so the idea was that on the process of bringing this cash back into the banking sector, they would have be able to kind of identify people that a lot of money kind of store in their home. And so that, that was kind of the, the idea behind the government. One of the issues that, you know, things didn't work out as smoothly as I told you, because essentially there was not enough cash essentially right away to replace the large amount of notes that were essentially avoided at the time of the decision. And so what effectively happened was a, you know, very large but temporary contraction in the amount of cash that was available in the economy, which, you know, started right away uh, in November 8, 2016 and lasted at the very least until January of 2017. Okay, that's very interesting. What was the level of penetration for these mobile wallet systems in India before this shock with the replacement of cash? And what did you see was the kind of curve that was sustained after uh, this happened? Unfortunately, we can't share with you the exact numbers. What we can tell you is that the penetration was growing in a lot of district, in districts in India in particular, in urban districts before the shock, so before November 8th, but it grew exponentially after that. So through the shock period, which is basically the months of November 2016, December 2016 and January 2017, the growth rates were in excess of 100% weekly. Uh, so you know the number of transactions, the volume of transactions, the number of retailers, the point of sales using it roughly doubled or more than doubled for, uh, every week. And as I mentioned before, this, this persisted after the, the shock itself. Yeah, the, the growth decline in the, in the, in the, in the starting in January, but still there was a pretty high growth rate also in the following month. So this paper covers a lot in, in terms of the seminal moment in India before and after the shock. If we take a step back uh, and we look at the global landscape, Max, what do you see as kind of the rate of adoption for mobile payments and how does this fit into your overall picture? Yes, uh, for sure. So we just heard Amnico and Filippo talking about uh, digital wallets in, in developing countries such as India being on the rise. And that's actually what, what we at ARC see across the, the whole globe. So the phenomenon of digital wallets, you can tie it back to China. And for, for a lot of people, when, when they think about digital wallets, what they think about is WeChat Pay and Alipay. So just Giving a glimpse into what happened there in China, if you look at the growth numbers in terms of the, the mobile payment volume these platforms produce, if we look at just 2018, the mobile payment volume actually is double the size of the GDP. And they virtually started at, an, at around 1 trillion 2014, so five years ago, and really from, from zero if we go back 10 or more years. So the growth we saw there um, is really staggering. 
moving to other Asian countries, we, we see this kind of growth being replicated. Countries like Thailand, where mobile payment adoption increased just between 2018 and 2019 from 50 to around 67%. We also see it in countries like Vietnam and Indonesia. Of course, we just talked about India. There are also several players only in the digital world space, but then also other entrants such as WhatsApp um, launching their payment service in India, kind of kind of on the back of these 200 million WhatsApp users there. We can also look at the sub-Saharan Africa region where you have payment methods um, that are more based on the mobile network providers such as M-Pesa, also other success stories from countries like Zimbabwe, where these mobile money or mobile payment methods are really on a staggering rise. And they also, in, in these countries, really, I think um, Nico uh, or Felipe already mentioned that, contribute to the uh, financial inclusion in the terms of that the, the bank account penetration is really not that high in a lot of developing countries. But what is high is the mobile phone penetration. So if you look at the World Bank numbers, much of the increase in financial inclusion that happened over the last years in terms of you know people having access now to financial products is not via these people signing up at the local bank branch, but actually using the mobile phone for different kind of financial transactions. You actually don't have to look at only developing countries, though, because if you look at some something like Venmo and Cash Up in the US, they also see really exponential growth over here. So we just heard a user number from Venmo uh, one or two weeks ago, where they said that their uh, yearly active users are around 40 million. This actually puts them really on the second place if you actually order the, the US financial institution, the banks, a number of their digital users, puts Venmo on the second place there. Cash Up is around at place 504, depending on how you see their active users' numbers as they disclose them monthly. And who's number one? It's actually Chase. Chase. Yes. Huh. Ch Chase is actually leading uh, with with they say they have uh, around 50 million digital across the whole product spectrum, right? So if you look at Venmo and, and Cash App, you know, the main functions of these apps are peer-to-peer -peer transfers. I see. So Chase is not a singular app. It is across multiple apps. Exactly. So so they see, they count their digital users as, um, you know, users that have um, logged on digitally to check their account balances. Is this the same so idea as my Bank of America app, for example? Yes, yeah, sure. Oh, okay. So, so that's kind of a different category, isn't it? It's almost it like just checking your banking. It's it's an app for your legacy banking service, not a, I guess, an app designed for peer-to-peer -peer payments or, or things of yes. that sort. You can probably also do your Zelle peer-to-peer transactions in your Bank of America app. But no, it probably speaks to the impact of Venmo who only tackle this one purpose. Yeah. So I guess if we tie it back to India, how does uh, the, the current state compare uh, in your in everyone's view compared to uh, relative to the global peers, whether it's China or, or a more developed country like the US? I think that India is on a on a very good path there. In in the in the Asian context, definitely one of the leading countries. One one of the players that is mentioned uh, a lot is Paytm, which boosts actually hundred hundreds of millions of users already in India. One of the leading digital wallet. And you also see actually and this speaks to the kind of success that India and especially Paytm has. You also see that Paytm is actually expanding in in other you know global regions. So last year we saw a new mobile payment service launch in Japan called PayPay. And that was actually on, on kind of on the back of, of Paytm. So they used the knowledge that Paytm was able to get over the last years in India, and now try to implement in Japan. 
So I think that is right now a nice opportunity to get back to to Nico and Filippo and perhaps get a little bit more into detail of the paper. And one thing I was interested about, um, maybe we could start there. The paper also has a economical theory angle to it. Um, I think you already touched on it, but it would be great if you could expand on this notion of the different factors that are limiting the scaling of technologies. I think you talk about coordination problems. So maybe you could talk about that, which which factors do you see there? And how do you see them um, being overtaken by this shock? So that's actually sort of what drove us to, to look at this, at this particular shock and this particular tech. It's you know, we talk a lot about innovation, we think a lot about innovation in economics, but a big component of how you go from innovation to actual growth is adoption of new tech. And, and as you mentioned, Max, there's a lot of thinking in economics about what stops new, uh, new techs from being adopted. So there's all sorts of theories. Some have to do with just the fact that it's costly, some to potentially costly to adopt new techs. Some have to do with the fact that firms might be inclined to prefer the status quo for whatever reason. What we focused on is, as you mentioned, this idea that uh, sometimes there might be coordination problems. So those are not always going to be relevant. They're going to be relevant whenever the tech that's, that you're thinking of has what we call network externalities or more broadly externalities. So that's the idea that the tech is more valuable to me privately as a firm if or to the extent that a lot of other firms have already adopted it. So I value it more if there's already a lot of adoption and I value it less if there's little adoption. So, you know, it's easy to think of a bunch of examples, but lots of network-based techs have this feature, you know, the phone, uh, the fax machine back in the day, email, and without also digital wallet technologies. So why do you have coordination problems in those cases? Well, the rough idea is, you know, if I as a firm think that there's a lot of other firms that are going to use the tech, then I'm incited to join the, the network. And if everybody has the same expectations that I do, then there's going to be a lot of people joining the network. So it's going to be a self-fulfilling good equilibrium. But you could also have a self-fulfilling bad equilibrium where I think nobody's going to join the network. Everybody thinks consistently with me that nobody wants to join the network, and so the network stays small. So the coordination here, the coordination problem is if we could all coordinate on joining the network, we would be all the better off. We will all adopt, and the value of the tech would be high. But that doesn't necessarily happen. That can depend on people's expectations and so on. Uh, so that's kind of the, the coordination problem in this context. And, it, you know, it we think it's interesting per se, but it's also increasingly important because a lot of techs in the new economy have this feature that they're valuable because there's a network embedded in them and how you get to scale on that network, how you get to the, the size of the network that makes the tech really valuable to everybody is super important, but of course, super fragile because of this coordination issue. Yes. So maybe Filippo, this, this seems like the holy grail. So how do you get to the good equilibrium? Yeah, so in theory, I mean, as Nico said, I mean, it's it's all a matter of expectation. So, you know, what, what people have thought, I mean, this is not uh, unique of our setting, is that when you have this coordination problem, what could help, it's essentially any external kind of signal to kind of help people to coordinate. And so when you think about the demonetization, what pretty much happened is that there was a very large shock to cash, as we talked before. And so, you know, if you take it very, very kind of practically, essentially, it forced people to think, well, look, there's not going to be any cash. So 
not only I need to use electronic payment potentially, but also other people may have the same expectation. And so kind of intuitively, that will allow people to converge to this situation where you're actually going to expect electronic payment to become more important. And so, you know, you can actually, when you, when you look at our model, that's kind of what you can see there is that, you know, you actually need any long-term shock. All you need is like a large enough temporary shock, which is essentially what the monetization was, that essentially kind of allow people to kind of coordinate their expectation about the technology and kind of, allow, and, and that could essentially trigger a large adoption. So that's true in theory, but it also seems to be true in practice during this demonetization. And that's because essentially what you see there is that as soon as the shock happened, people kind of start joining the platform. And as people join the platform, you know, then as Nico was saying, there is a self-reinforcing mechanism because as more people join the platform, more valuable the platform becomes. So more people will keep joining the platform. And so, you know, again, all you need is some temporary intervention as long as this is large enough to kind of switch equilibrium. To kind of bring you to the good, to the gay situation, this essentially could be kind of self-sustaining in, in the long run. Yes. So so talking about these positive externalities, I think it was also mentioned in, your, in, in the paper that you found that in areas where you already had a substantial amount of, of adoption, that you know the, the the positive externality effects um, were even stronger. It's, I think I think you you looked at different zip codes um, or or a two meshes. I think the proximity to larger cities. Could you give us an insight in, into that? Yeah. So going back to the theory a bit, yeah, the so the mechanism that we described, Max, as you hinted at, is that when people anticipate the value of joining the network to be high, they decide to join it. And of course, that effect is going to be stronger if the, the size of the network is already pretty high. Uh, so that's a very clean and simple thing. In theory, in practice, it's a little bit more messy to test because exactly outlining what the network, what the relevant network is, is very difficult. So we took a couple of approaches to it. And Filippo, I think, can do a, a better job than, uh, than me, perhaps, at explaining. Uh, but the rough idea was we looked both at nearby Uh, geographical regions that are close to the adoption rates are in geographical regions that are close to a particular region with the assumption that that's a natural market or a natural network for the tech. And what we found is that when a district or a region is surrounded by high adoption regions, it tends to respond strongly and more persistently to the shock than others. And then we also looked at even more micro data, which is at the firm level. And there, what we find is that If you compare firms within a particular uh, geographic, so zip code, as you said, the, the India equivalent of a zip code, and we compare industries that have high versus low adoption rates pre-shock, we find that uh, the increase in adoption is higher for those firms within the zip code that belong to the high adoption uh, pre, uh, the high industry, the high adoption industry prior to the shock. So those are kind of different ways of, if you want, delimiting the market that's relevant and Across these different ways, we find that if you have more pre-adoption, pre-shock adoption, you're likely to respond more strongly. Do you also have any insights on on the consumer side of this equation? For me, it seems like that you are talking about the adoption on on a firm level. How do you see the consumer playing playing into this? Do you also have data on this, or do you see him involved in this network effect? What's your view on that? Yes, we focus mostly on companies for two reasons. One, you know, that's we thought there was a As, as we talked about before, it's kind of more 
bigger question for us of like, there is so many examples of company not adopting good technology. So that's, that's where we were coming from. And so that's where we were trying to understand the decision of the company. And second of all, we also focus on that because that's where we have actually good data. So the data we have is, you know, essentially firm. And when we talk about firm here, we really talk about retailers, decision to join the platform and their use over time. And so we don't have any data on the consumer, but we do think consumers are key here. I mean, when we talk about like network externality, I mean, or externality in general here, externality are strong in electronic payment exactly because this is a two-sided market. You know, on the one hand, you have firm, you have retailers, they're going to choose whether to offer these to their customer. On the other hand, you're going to have customer, they're going to choose where to shop, and they're going to choose different way of paying. And so... Clearly here, the consumer part is key. The reason why me as a retailer, as a company, I may want to offer this option to my customer is positively affected by how many other firms are doing this is because exactly there is kind of a shared customer base. The idea that as, you know, let's say 100 store in a, in a town offer this electronic payment, that means the consumer are actually demanding it. That means the consumer will actually join the platform and that's going to make me join the platform more valuable. So in short, I mean, we don't directly monitor consumer. We don't have also data on that. But that's essentially where our externality are coming from, which is important because, you know, in different situations, you can need different sources of externality. Like there could be other market in which essentially externality are generated, uh, not necessarily because this is a two-sided market. Like maybe there could be other values, for instance, like that could be important for that. But, but essentially, in this specific case, we think the consumer part is really what, what kind of drive the externality part. Okay, that makes sense. The last addition is we look a little bit on consumer just at the very end of the paper, which is a little bit different, which is we look essentially out the shock and effect on consumer behavior. So we also collected some other data, which is completely separate. This is data on actually consumption by households in India. And so what we show there essentially is that, first of all, the demonetization adds some effect on their consumption. So we look at districts that were more affected by the demonetization by using some variation in the extent of which cash contract in the local market, which is measured by using some bank data, which you know we can we can give you some more detail, but that's kind of the basic intuition. And then we show that essentially this consumer they seems to be more affected in region in which cash contracted more, but this effect actually much smaller in region in which the network of electronic payment is strong enough. So it seems to be that electronic payment access is kind of important to understand how much households have suffered from this contraction in cash. So that's, that's kind of the, the one part where we also directly look at consumer. Okay, interesting. That definitely also speaks to your point, yes. Another concept that you mentioned in the, in the paper is that of sunk costs. I think Perhaps some, some listeners are already familiar with that term. Could you maybe expand on, on, on the concept of, of sunk costs in the context of the digital wallet, but then also in the context of the permanent adoption? Do you see the permanent adoption happening because, I don't know, these, these merchants are not stuck with this technology? Or how do you count in sunk costs here? Yes, that's a great question. And that's kind of the one of the, the things that we thought about really carefully because the first thing that comes to mind when you when you see this wave in adoption is is a simpler story than the network story we're telling which is uh, what max you you alluded to with the words on cost it's simply maybe there's some fixed cost of adopting the tech 
the cost might be pecuniary. Uh, you know, it might be some actual money down to that you have to pay in order to use the tech. In the case of the wallet we're looking at, we think the pecuniary costs are essentially zero. So, but there still might be other forms of cost, you know, learning costs. You might have to figure out how this thing works. But then once you've paid that cost, you're locked into the technology. And so adoption goes up because of the transitory shock and stays high because you're, you've paid the, the fixed cost. Now we think that there's probably some component that that story that's relevant to our the case of India and the, the wallet adoption after the demonetization. But the thing for us that in the data suggests that fixed costs are not the whole story is a pretty simple observation, which is the rate of adoption, that, that is the number of new users joining the platform every month or every week, went up permanently. So it's not just the level, it's not just the total number of people who are on the platform that went up. It's also the rate at which new retailers uh, joined the platform that uh, kept uh, that increased and it increased even you know four or five six months after the shock had had uh, vanished and that's really hard to get in a model that motivates adoption or the lack of adoption simply through fixed costs in those in that type of a model once the shock is over uh, the benefit from joining the platform goes back to whatever it was before the shock occurred and so there isn't a strong incentive to join. And so you see the number of new users go back to uh, some low level uh, that it was before the shock. Whereas, you know, what happens when you have uh, a technology with network externalities, like we think the wallet features, is that the shock raises the benefits of joining permanently. And so it attracts permanent more retailers, more, uh, more firms. And that's what, exactly what we see in the data. So, so again, broadly, we think that the data is seems to speak to uh, more to these uh, to these network externalities and it's not a perfect silver bullet but the fact that we see a permanent increase in adoption we think is really strong evidence that, that the externalities are there that makes sense yes so talking about these high sustained growth numbers filippo um coming to the end of the podcast here could you maybe give us any insights into you know, potential policy implications, any thoughts you have on on how this would be replicated? Yeah, I mean, actually, I think there are, like, if you think about for policy, there are two kind of general take-home, that are takeaways that I would have from these. But first of all, going back to the fixed costs, I mean, we don't think fixed costs really explain the, old, the overall adoption for electronic wallet, but we do think that, you know, in general, if you think about electronic payment, traditional debit card versus credit card, Versus electronic wallet, we do think you know fixed costs are important. So pushing toward like fintech seems to be potentially valuable because essentially you can potentially increase financial inclusion as you were talking before. And the way you can see this is that you know if you look at the growth rate as I mentioned earlier on traditional uh, debit card and even more for credit card, you don't see this huge increase that you see in electronic wallet. And so that's the first point. So the second point that goes back more to the stuff you were talking before is that. When you have this technology with externality, kind of what you learn here is that on the good side, all you need sometimes is a, like a temporary shock that kind of can move your equilibrium, that can lead to a large increase in adoption. And this increase in adoption could actually be permanent. What you actually learn from the model and the data is that the flip side of this, like if you want to take a more negative view, is that yes, you can have a lot of increase in adoption. You can have a large aggregate increase in adoption. But when you have externality, you could potentially also ask what we call like uh, state dependence, which means that essentially there could be actually an increase in the inequality in adoption. And the intuition is similar to what we were talking before. It's like 
yeah, it's true that the shock lead people to kind of increase using the technology, but this increase will particularly be strong in areas in which the strength of externality from the beginning was already high. So if you can think about cities or urban areas in which potentially there were more use of electronic wallet, those are going to be the center in which you're going to see a larger increase. And so in this situation, then essentially, yes, it's true that you can achieve a large increase in adoption, but potentially you're going to increase the inequality in adoption. So you're going to still have areas that in where the adoption rate are low. And so if you think about a government or a company, which is kind of trying to kind of foster the use of technology, this is a cost that potentially they face. They may have very large response, but then they could still have a large part of the country or of an industry in which essentially adoption is low. And so what we show in the model is essentially that kind of one way to kind of get around it and try to create more equal adoption is having a longer lasting policy. So, you know, in this case, you don't introduce like a subsidy, you know, let's, if you think about more broadly about other type of technology, like if you're a government, you may not want to introduce a subsidy for only, let's say, one month or two months, you might want to like target something longer. And this is not because the two months will not work, but because potentially the two months will work, but it will also going to leave a lot of heterogeneity adoption. A lot of area or a lot part of the industry will have a large adoption versus other don't. So that's kind of a, something kind of unexpected we didn't think about before starting the paper, but this is, we think it's an important trade-off about technology with externality, which are becoming you know, increasingly important. Yes, and I think we also see um, evidence of that if we look in, in different you know, economies around the world where we see a rise of mobile payment technologies. For, take, for example, in Japan, we see a lot of companies now kind of weighing in there and pushing their mobile payment efforts. One company there is PayPay. Um, I actually mentioned them before. They also associated with an Indian um, digital wallet uh, operator. And what PayPay is doing, they, they were just launched late last year, so pretty recently. So what they did is they launched um, several cashback campa campaigns where the users could get 20% of the money for each purchase back. So this was quite a good customer acquisition strategy for the company. But what we heard from the Japanese market here and there is that you know when when these cashback um, campaigns end the users probably will just return you know to another provider of, of mobile payments perhaps with a with a similar cashback rate so and then pay pay probably has to do another campaign so i think this kind of speaks to your point that you have to be persistent and have to have these permanent and and you know reoccurring uh, interventions or campaigns whatever you will call them uh, in that context to achieve the the rate of adoption that you want to see if i can add like yeah i mean i guess the, what the model more specific would say is that if this campaign is so successful that builds up enough mass then you know this is this not necessarily be the case but but you know in this context where potentially you have competing platform that's another level of complication which you know we didn't really directly analyze in the paper but that's definitely would arise be consistent with a more general type of model. Nicola and Filippo, this has been a great kind of deep dive into the, the situation that sparked off in India. What are you working on next as kind of a, either related or perhaps not related in research into kind of uh, mobile wallets and payment systems? So at the moment, we're trying to do a couple of things. One of them is uh, pushing more in this particular question of uh, wallet, tech, uh, payment wallets and, um, and the shock is one of the nice things you can do with a, with sort of an economic model is you can try and speculate about what would have happened if 
and also what sorts of policies could be more effective than this enormous shock to generate uh, adoption. So the, what would have happened if, you know, we can use the model to speculate about what if the shock had been shorter, smaller, what would happen if instead of a shock, the government had decided to implement some sort of a, a subsidy to adoption of, cash pay, of cashless payment technologies and so on. So one of the things we're doing is we're trying to to use our model to answer some of these questions for India, we think that's kind of a, a cool thing you can do uh, when you take this approach. And then we're also thinking about ways in which to measure better the effect of adoption of the wallet on consumption. So Filippo alluded to the fact that we have we have some data on consumption, but it's from um, a pretty different source. So it's not directly connected to uh, the data we have on um, on retailers' adoption of the technology. And so we're trying to figure out whether there are ways in which we could more directly connect measures of consumption with measures of adoption so as to figure out whether adoption was a way to sort of offset some of the negative effects of the shock. Okay, that's great. Uh, Nicola and Filippo, thank you for so much for joining us today. This has been a very enlightening conversation and we look forward to your future work. Thank you very much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of FYI. If you're interested in plugging in to everything that's happening in the world of innovation, follow us on Twitter. You can follow the ARC corporate account or the individual analyst account if you're interested in a specific area. Max will cover everything in fintech. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I'd highly recommend following Max. And to make sure you don't miss future episodes, subscribe to our podcast. We'll catch you next week. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.